TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Bike Nerds Podcast, episode 40. For you, the listeners of the Bike Nerds Podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Sarah, have you been listening to any audiobooks lately? I have. I went back in time and I listened to Anne of Green Gables Wow! by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Wow. I've never actually uh, read those stories, but I have seen the movies. I was a big... Anne of Green Gables fan as a reader, as a child, uh-huh. and Rachel McAdams, who I believe is an actress, okay. but I could be wrong, narrates it. Really? Yeah. I mean, I think there is a Rachel McAdams. You're suggesting it might not be the same one? I think it's the same one because it like is prominent that she performs Anne of Green Gables. Gotcha. Now, Anne of Green Gables is the first story. What's the What's the sequel to that? That's a really great question. I haven't gotten that far. Oh. I have no idea. <laughs> Wasn't there like a second movie? There's a whole se- – well, they're books, Kyle, first no, no, of no. all. <laughs> oh. So you're, um, and you're, Anne not, Green- you're not listening to the movie then. No, I'm listening to the book and I'm listening to the first book. Okay. Anne of Avonlea maybe is the second movie. Are you Googling? No, I'm I'm sort of trying to remember here. I'm terribly impressed. Thank you. <laughs> like, to, it's super <laughs> To down your, your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash OAM. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash OAM. Uh, yeah, you know, I my mom shared with my brothers and I the Anne of Green Gables movies. Oh, nice. Yeah, so I mean, I've, I've definitely seen You it. were correct. Yes, Anne of Avonlea? Yep, and then Anne of the Island, Anne of the Windy Poplars. These are the books. Anne's House of Dreams, Anne of Ingleside. Interesting. I didn't realize they were published so much in the early 19th, 1900s. Like, like, Anne of Green Gables was published in 1908. So, like, real time that the story's taking place. Yeah. Wow. It was a current piece of fiction. I didn't realize that. <laughs> you're just so, historical. Yeah, I mean you're still I was gonna say you're so historical in in your reading. <laughs> so what's going on, Wagon Shoots? Uh so this past week in Colorado I experienced weather that I would only experience in Memphis on like maybe the coldest week of the year, you know, in the depths of January or February, where you sort of have like that week in Memphis where it's just bitterly cold and everything shuts down, all the bread and milk are sold. There's a threat of snow, so canceled schools canceled for a couple of days. But I experienced that for the whole week here and it's just the first week of December. How do you feel? Like, what's your, like, what's our, the temperature check? Like, 
Do you well, feel good about the rest of the winter? Are I, you nervous? I am a little concerned. Uh, I So this, this past week was a good opportunity. I, I wore a different jacket to work every day. I wanted to sort of test to see... Which which of my <laughs> I know you're laughing, but which you're a nerd. Of, which of my Memphis jackets was going to be suitable for actually bicycling to work and back? Um, and I now have a very clear pile that is not going to be suitable for biking to work in the, this winter, and those that will survive uh, the one and a half mile downhill trip into work. So you found a potential long term solution. I did. Unfortunately, the, the long term solutions aren't like water resistant or waterproof um and so that has me a little worried because on friday i wanted to share this story with you live on the air on friday at about 9 a.m it began snowing outside the office and i'm not talking like just like a little bit of snow like the biggest snowflakes you've ever seen in your entire life um and it went on and on and snowed all day and so here i am you know it's like 9 a.m i'm like oh Snowing at 9 a.m. I'm preparing myself for my employer to let me go home early at like at lunchtime, you know, just in case the roads get bad. Uh, let I'm getting sort of anticipating schools, getting an announcement from the school that the school's going to let out. And you know what happened? I had Tell to, me. I had to work all day long on Friday. <laughs> nobody, nobody sent me home early. It was just sort of like a thing for these people. And I was like, there is. The equivalent of what I think of as a blizzard outside right now. <laughs> and we're still at work. And it was it snowed all day long. And fortunately it was it was too warm for any of the snow to stick, except for like the shady spots. Uh but I had to ride home in the snow. And it's December. So you had and, your it's, first and it's December second. You had your first true winter cycling experience. <laughs> yeah. I th- but next week, so um, are you gonna have to like become? Are you gonna have to like get special tires? Are you I gonna don't become know. A winter cyclist? I don't know. I might become like a winter bus rider. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like next week, the high on like Tuesday is like twelve. Does that? What does that even I mean? Just, I'm <laughs> I'm most shocked about like your level of shock. What does that even mean? Twelve, like as the 12 high. Twelve degrees. Yeah. <laughs> You live in Colorado. What does that even feel like? In and we're supposed to get like two to five inches of snow. So, um, you know, I think it's going to be an evolving um, storyline with me for the next couple of weeks. I think I think it would be appropriate for you to check in with me on how I'm coping. I cannot wait. I actually thought about you today because I went for a bike ride. And it's like 45 degrees here and like kind of <laughs> wet and rainy. And like I was kind of cold, but I was like. Kyle, geez, Louise. Like, I wonder what his, like, Sunday yeah. bike ride looked like. I bet it doesn't look like this. Uh, like, you know, what you just I described sounds heavenly. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, I, like, feel relatively comfortable. But 12 degrees, you are going to become a winter cyclist. I cannot wait. That's my pro- that is my pro- projection for yeah. 2017. I, I worry, though, you know, to meet your standard of winter cyclist, I'm not sure that I have to go far enough to actually – you know, do too much, right? My my time of exposure is about ten minutes um, between my house and work, and so you know, even if I'm like underprepared for twelve degrees, the length, you know, I'm not going to die in ten minutes. Um, <laughs> you, well, I, think, I don't. I think I, not, but now that I say those words out loud, <laughs> I'm not sure if that's actually true or not. 
I mean, I cannot speak to when you will or may not die, but I feel like death by like winter cycling in terms of like the elements feels like a rare, <laughs> rare occurrence. Uh, if it's going to happen anywhere, I think Boulder would probably be the place though, right? <laughs> I can't wait. It's, it's not so in the brochure, but 25 people die every year winter cycling in Boulder. <laughs> There's like a little asterisk. Yeah. It's like in the smallest of a font on their like chamber of commerce website. Yeah. FYI. Yeah. There so, is such a thing. So today, in preparation for this two to five inches that we're supposed to get next week, uh, we bought a snow shovel. You need to get a snow blower. Well, I, the, our sidewalk that we have to that we're responsible for shoveling is a, is approximately twenty feet long. Um, so it's not I that big of a deal. Um, we we got it more in case like the car if we have to like show i don't know but we just we bought a snow shovel it seemed like the appropriate thing to do yeah i don't know if we were the only like goofballs at kroger buying a snow shovel <laughs> but they sell but they sell them at kroger so. do you think they have like a like a welcome to boulder section and it's like a snow shovel those little like heat things you put in your gloves for all like the the dumb southerners who've come up who are like 12 degrees maybe so i'll tell you one thing that is a bit worrying is uh ethan and i went to the comic book shop yesterday and next door to the comic book shop is like a tire store like where you can get new tires on your car and it was it had more cars waiting to get tires on them than i'd ever seen in my entire life and i it, are they getting like some kind of special like winter tire put on their cars? <laughs> I feel like you have people to ask in your office and yeah. hopefully friends. But yeah, like people like put there's like winter tires, and if you're gonna like go up in the mountains, you'll put like chains on your tires. No, we're not doing that. I mean, let's <laughs> let's just be let's just be realistic here. Are you not gonna go skiing? I I'm not gonna drive my car up there. <laughs> but you would go up there in some other means. I'll take the bus. And ski. Public, there you go. Public transportation to the ski resorts. That's fantastic. Right? And, but, I, you know, it's just, there's so many things coming at me right now. All has to do with this, like, winter stuff. And part of me is just like, well, if I just stay indoors for six months, I should just be okay. But you're training for, like, a half marathon or, like, a 5K, right? Yeah, but I, I can, I can like, deal with, like, walking outside, right? That feels that feels okay. So you're training, like, at a, you have a gym to go to. Well, I, well, the nature is my gym. So you're going to be running, <laughs> like, in five feet of snow. Five feet? No, no, no. You said five inches. Does it? Are they... <laughs> it can come and it can happen in feet, too. Oh, my goodness. Oh my goodness, Sarah. Are you going to run? I was also thinking about your training. Like, are you going to run in your running shoes? Do they make running boots? Like how do people train for races and the outdoors in this sort of element? Yeah, just keep going. I'm taking notes right now just to sort of questions I can ask tomorrow. Yeah. See if I can like casually work in winter questions into my work conversation. Yeah. Like what does winter running look like? Did you, uh, did you read this article about bike safety? (laughs) You know, I wonder if there's I wonder if there's any ramifications to winter bicycling within that. Do you think we should we should talk about that a little bit, I think. Um, you know, just just casually working yeah, in. Or, or casually be like, so uh does everyone have all their tire car tire appointments scheduled? Is this something I should be doing? Did I see your car parked at the tire shop? Oh, yeah, Maybe there, were, there's... there were a lot of cars there. I don't know what they were there for. <laughs> 
there feels like there was a, a huge miss in your onboarding about like what winter looks like. <laughs> I should have asked these questions. Yeah. In the interview. <laughs> yeah. I think you missed an opportunity. Here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I actually went for a run today. Um, it's like in the thirties today. It felt pretty good. I think, uh, as the weather gets a little colder, I'm getting a little slower. Um, but interesting. Uh, yeah. I'm feeling just like less motivated to move faster, especially, especially when you get up at like five to go run. There's already like a lack of motivation at five. Right. Um, but yeah, I'm impressed. How's, uh, how have you been? So it's been, it's been rainy and a bit cold. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, been just a little little down. But speaking of running, Memphis. yesterday was the St. Jude Marathon in Memphis, right? It was indeed. Yeah. I saw a lot of, like, miserable-looking runners who were running for a really great cause. Like, I think they raised, like, $50 million for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Is that it? But there was, like, a lot of people in, like, trash bags. Uh-huh. And like- I find that... Like, just, like, poor planning. Like, I was, like, really irritated that, like, they knew it was going to rain, like, at a poncho. Like, okay, so they were, like, they were, like, physical trash bags, not That they were wearing as ponchos. So, like, they got downtown, and they were, like, oh, it's actually raining. (laughs) And they, like, went into a store and got, like, a clear garbage bag? I don't know. I This is, like, a question I actually wish I had stopped while I... Was walking around because, observing the racers because you were on your way to brunch versus <laughs> running running the marathon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the marathon happened yesterday, and I think you know it's always great to see pictures of downtown Memphis chock full. Yeah, like twenty thousand running a fantastic institution. Yeah, it, you know uh, that, that you know the race used to come down my street in Cooper Young. And so it was always one of those things like we were like, yep, marathon day. Guess we're just going to stay at home. Trying to, trying to like get out of the house during that time was always pretty tricky. Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of blocked in, but I've always, I think, lived places where I have been blocked in. So I'm used to it. Yeah. And then you can like cheer, you know, there's always cheer parties. (laughs) But I didn't participate in any of those. (laughs) Okay. But that that would have been like free brunch, right? Yeah, I should have done it differently, actually. Yeah, maybe I, I think maybe you should have like worked on getting invited to a couple of those. Yeah. And you could have had like breakfast and then second breakfast and then brunch um, all in the same day, probably for free. Um, a marathon of eating, if you will. Mm, you'd be doing the opposite. You'd be consuming all of the calories that the people running it were actually expending. <laughs> So it's even. The universe would yeah. be at, at, at balance at that point. But it is kind of amazing. Like running 26 miles to me is just like – like it's like climbing Mount Everest. Yeah. Both seem ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like so impressed. Yeah. I mean so my, my brother, uh, Kent, is a runner and he's run a couple marathons and he basically you know sort of – told me that it's every single time he does it it's like the worst decision he's ever done it's like ever made it's oh just God. it's just he's a he's like just no he's like there's no reason to run that far uh he he sort of described to me that he's like really comfortable like at the half marathon distance and then maybe a little bit beyond that but at, but at a certain point your body just is like please stop running um, but why does he do it 
he doesn't really do that many marathons. I think he more does it for sort of like the unique experience that comes with it. So he's done like a couple marathons at like Disney World, for instance, where, you know, you'll run the Disney World marathon and get like a special medal and that kind of stuff. Um, he told me he actually just got accepted into like the Berlin Marathon. He, he, In Berlin, Germany? Yeah. So he's going to go, right? But it, he's not, he's not, he's running the marathon because it's in Berlin. As, as a part of that experience, he's going to do the marathon. Um, so it's sort of like a motivating thing for him. But he's run, he ran the St. Jude Marathon once and ran the half marathon a number of times. Also, he also told me, you know, sometimes like the half marathon portions of these kinds of races will like sell out pretty quickly. And so if he wants to participate in it, sometimes he has to do a marathon because it's like the only thing that's left. Well, couldn't he just run it like a, I mean, I realize the routes are different, but he's like, oh, I guess I'll just double my run because this part portion was sold out. Yeah, I don't know. Fascinating. I mean, I'm running this half marathon, and that seems pretty crazy to me. I think it sounds crazy to me. I think at my current pace, I could probably finish in about 14 hours. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a goal, like what your mile, like average mile is? Uh, I don't. I I'm I'm more interested just in finishing. I think. Um, I'm actually running a 10k one day, and then the half marathon the next day. What? Yeah. Because Is that normal? No, because I'll tell you why. It's because the half the one of one of the two was already sold out. Maybe it was maybe it was the ten K was already sold out. Like I would have been I would have been perfectly happy running in the Star Wars ten K versus the Star Wars half marathon. But the ten K was sold out. And so the only option was left was either to run the half marathon or for fifty dollars more to run this ten K and the half marathon and get like a special medal for running both of them. And I was like, I want the special star Wars medal. And so I signed up for both. Sometimes I just don't <laughs> get, I just don't understand. I know this is the same. I'm the same person that can't comprehend what 12 degrees is going to be like next week. <laughs> I'm, I'm struggling to follow. I don't think they're going to send us home from work either. I think, no, they won't. <laughs> they will not. You are not going to get any snow days. I guarantee it. Uh, I'm going to have to talk to somebody, I think. Um, <laughs> maybe claim like a physical impairment to, to working uh, at, that, at that kind of temperature. Have you traveled anywhere fun for no, work? No, you know, I haven't. Um, I think this month I'm pretty much here um, in Colorado just working. You know, we're going through like this big application process for – cities to join our new program called the big jump project yes and i'm so i'm reading applications we got 80 we got 80 applications in um and so i've actually read through the all of them once already and i'm about halfway through reading through them again just to make sure that i understood that my the notes that i took the first time through were were actually accurate because after about application 27 uh, it got it got pretty muddy right <laughs> what oh i oh my what gosh i, had I can't read. imagine so, I mean, the, super cool things. Like people are doing really great things all across the country. And so it's just a, it's just a lot of work to sort of, you know, filter through it. And at the end of the day, ultimately, we're, we're only going to choose 10 of the 80, you know, to actually go forward with us together in the project. And so we've got to figure out a way to, you know, cut seven eighths of the, of the applications out. How many of the, if, I don't know, and you can declined to answer this how many of the applications are from towns or cities that you had not heard of 
Um, I would not say not heard of. Um, maybe not like not been to, or you know, I I would say a majority of them are most of the mid to larger size cities that we mm-hmm. that we you know that you hear about in various ways, any way, shape, or form. You know, there were a couple like rural New York or sort of a couple rural towns that I wasn't super familiar with, but I looked them up on Google Maps and did a quick Google search and found out where they were. So, um, you know, I, w- I wouldn't say there were a huge number of sort of surprising applicants in there. Um, but we did, we did, you know, we, we even got applications from Hawaii and Alaska. Ooh. Yeah. All 50 states. No, nah, not all 50, but, oh. but definitely got the, the outer two. Uh, we're definitely so are- included. What is biking like? Are rural towns or even yeah, rural towns like? Are they looking at like tourism as like how to develop their biking culture? Are they actively like installing protected bike lanes and have community bike shops? Like, is there like a snapshot of what rural bike culture looks like? You know, I'm not sure that there's like a, a unanimous trend. Uh, I would say, you know, the the similarity between sort of smaller towns is. That they do seem to have a more defined sense of what bicycling means to them versus like a big city where bicycling means a lot of different things within a lot of different contexts, right? In a big city like Memphis, you know, one group could be promoting bicycling for health, another for tourism, another for, you know, access to jobs and transportation or getting to transit easier. Those kinds of things get a little muddier. I think the bigger that they go, and I find that there's a, there's a little bit of clarity at the, at a much smaller town level because they're, because they have sort of, you know, fewer, fewer complications in terms of, um, you know, what they do as a city and just in general. But, you know, so some of them, you know, depending on where they are and how close they're located to cities, some of them might be looking at like transit connections. Mm-hmm. So they might be like, these might be like rural bedroom communities of much larger cities. And so they're trying to help their residents get to access to train systems or to bus systems easier. Um, you know, others are looking at, at the tourism and recreation piece in a much bigger way. Um, so, I mean, yeah, yeah, I think it's kind of all over the place, but, but they definitely have, uh, I think uh, a more pure sense of, of what they want bicycling to be for their community. That's interesting. Yeah. I look forward to, I think this is like, I really like the the big jump like concept. Like are the, what's the process been for you to like read all these applications? I mean, I realize it's like muddy and hard, but is it like inspired? Like it's, it has to be like a really cool experience to get to see what everyone's doing. Yeah. You know, you get to sort of read about all the best things that communities are doing. I mean, that's, that's one, that's, that's, that's one filter, right? Is that communities are trying to put sort of their best foot forward to be a part of this program. And so we get to read about all of the good things, you know, that sometimes that gets, there's a bit of a reality check. You sort of realize, well, everything can't be going great, right? <laughs> if everything was going great for bicycles, you know, maybe you wouldn't be applying for this program. Right. You have already actually <laughs> done it. So, but I, but I do get to read about all of like the projects that are in the pipeline, the work that communities are doing around engaging, you know, residents and their citizens in the process, really sort of innovative, you know, planning techniques and innovative ways of designing things and how the people do processes differently and how they budget things differently. I mean, there's a lot of sort of like 
city wonk nerddom that sort of is is within a lot of those applications. Um, I would also say it's also interesting to read and identify the similarities between cities. Um, even if cities don't think that what they're doing is similar to other cities. Um, you know, what do you mean by that? Well, Explain that a little more. I, I would say that nine times out of ten, if you talk to a person that works in a city and you give them like a case study with like best practices, they, they, they there's a natural inclination, I think, for people as a part of the city to sort of describe why their city is different. And why, you know, this won't quite work here because of this reason. Um, you know, we, we sort of joke around that every city is sort of a special, unique snowflake um, that has their own problems. And so when you're building this, you know, it's the same way if, if you're an advocate, right, and you're trying to advocate for bike lanes. Um, and I can even remember doing this in, in Memphis, right, sort of having like, well, here's this study that says, you know, bicyclists who come to your business district are going to spend more money than than if they drive a car. And so the, the, the natural sort of inclination is to sort of say, well, that study was done in San Francisco. That's not Memphis. Here's all the reasons why it's different. And that, that trend can't be true here because it's so it's so different. And I think that's a that's a pretty common sort of response to those kinds of comparisons that happen. And it's, it's true both within cities and both if you're working in advocacy and what, what I get to see sort of at this much higher level at reading 80 applications, I can read them and be like, Oh, you know, 70 of these 80 applicants said a, B and C is how they're doing this. You know, I wonder if they all know that they're all doing a, B and C the same exact way, or maybe slightly variant, you know, variant ways of, of doing some of that with that kind of work, but it helps to also sort of draw out for me, you know, some, some common trends and help to identify ways in which, you know, people for bikes and myself and my team can advocate for some of these bigger policy initiatives, maybe at the federal or the state level, knowing that a majority of communities are facing, you know, certain issues. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's also an opportunity to kind of like communicate to cities that, you know, there are kind of like peer complementary programs that are happening that they could, you know, learn and share. Yeah, absolutely. Because they may think that they're, you know, doing things this like one way and the only ones doing it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you find that, do you find that true within sort of like bike share work? The bike share industry has been like really transparent and open. So there's like a really healthy amount of like lifts, listservs and a lot of like, Hey, like I just hit this wall on this like operations question or a funding question and people kind of respond on, you know, NABSA as a listserv. I think better bike share through people for bikes has a listserv and then NAC, so bike share also has. So it, I actually feel like kind of the, I think people are, it's because the industry is still so new or like really open to, to realizing that they're either doing something the same or they want to like learn what someone else is doing. Like there's like crazy nerdy, like, you know, 50 stream like emails between like bike share operators happening that I like. I'm obsessed with. So basically you just read listserv emails all day long. <laughs> yeah. you, you just named, I think more listservs than, uh, than, I'm, than I'm a part of. So your inbox is just blowing up all day long. Yeah. And I can ask questions and people respond as well. Um, 
do you ask questions? Are you actively engaged in the listserv debates? Um, not actively, because since we haven't launched yet, but uh-huh. I have definitely asked questions and gotten cool. responses. Good responses? Yeah, they're all really helpful. That's great. And I think there's also this openness to kind of ask questions that, like, you may feel stupid for asking, and people are, like, really, I think, like, gracious in their responses as well. Very nice. No one's been like, that's a stupid question. Get off my lister. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, hey, so what bike ride do you want to promote that you're not actually going to go on? Um, this, for this intro. <laughs> I don't have any upcoming <laughs> commitments. I have no s- stories to tell. I'm just wondering what fictitious story we can set okay, out uh, this week for you. <laughs> I am going to bike um, when it's like 30 degrees here this week. Um, from Laughlin Yard to the Big River Crossing to Ponchos and back. And I'm going to, I can already tell it's going to be a great time. And a lot of people are going to want to come with me because the weather is going to be so good. And I can't wait to share about that ride. (laughs) Um, What do you eat at Ponchos besides the cheese dip? There's tacos. I mean, it's your regular (laughs) Tex-Mex place, margaritas. I know. And I'm just, I'm just (laughs) picking at you. I actually had a thought about what if we did like an intro or a whole podcast while both of us were riding bikes in our respective cities. <laughs> Could that work from like a sound? No. <laughs> you, I think you would just hear like the wind blowing through the microphone the whole time. All right. I, it seemed like You're a like, kind of cool idea. Hello, this is Kyle Wagonshoots <laughs> reporting to you. Bike? Reporting to you live from the best bike trail in Boulder, Colorado. Is that how you talk when you ride bikes? I, you'd have to. You'd have to scream while you were doing it. So, no, I don't think it'll. I don't think that's going to work. Okay. <laughs> uh, Bye. I am going to be in Washington D.C. in early January uh, for the annual Transportation Research Board annual meeting. Which is what like happens there. It's like a big conference, you know, a couple thousand people. It's all of like the top transportation researchers from around the world come here. They share their findings on their new research and their papers. It's basically like, you know, thousands of PhDs come in to like nerd out about weird transportation topics. All the you know, ranging from like, you know, trucks and heavy freight, the future of trucks and heavy freight to biking and walking. And so I'm gonna be going and Hopefully, learning some lots of cool new things, and you know, maybe getting inspired for some new guests or some new topics for um, the podcast. Ooh, I can't wait! Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, to I'm do looking a, forward to a it. Report for the podcast. Yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about being in DC in January, but I guess it could could be better or could be worse than it is here. Yeah, I think you need to just like lean into the weather thing. <laughs> You're going to be experiencing lots of weather. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So this is our fortieth episode. Episode forty. The big four zero. I know. We reached middle age. Ooh, I'm feeling it. Feels. Um, I feel that, it too. That might just be the run that I went on earlier. Yeah. <laughs> or it could be our age. It's kind of exciting. So yes. we had the Shant Shaw, who li- currently lives in Memphis, and he's with Little Bird Innovation, and he'll speak on the podcast what that is. But but Shant is one of my favorite people to talk to at cocktail parties. So. It was great to have him on. 
and yeah, pick his nerd brain. And you know, we we weren't able to really sort of talk to Vashant about this, but Little Bird, the, the firm that he works for, actually did quite a bit of community engagement work for you as a part of the bike share process, right? Yeah, before we even really made the decision that bike share was right for Memphis, Little Bird and Explore Bike Share worked together to do a ton of community engagement that looked very different than your traditional community meetings and really focused on kind of a human-centered design thinking approach. And we had nine or 10 community meetings in a variety of different neighborhoods. And it really was less about like bike shares coming and more about let's talk about transportation issues you have. There's this tool that exists in the world called bike share. And like, let's have a conversation about what that could mean for Memphis. Um, And they were really fantastic to work with. And we actually got a great community engagement report from them that not only kind of talks about people's reactions to bike share, but I think, has a great snapshot about like what Memphis thought about transportation in 2015. So they're fantastic. Yeah. And Vashant just actually wasn't with the company at the time, which is why we, couldn't, we, it's not that we yeah. couldn't talk about it with him. It was just that he didn't actually work there at the time. So accurate. Also accurate. Also just so, just so the listeners know, um, I was actually having quite a bit of technical difficulties on my end uh, during while we were recording the podcast. So um, I'm on there for a little bit, but I would say, um, you know, it, it seems like I disappear at some point. Um, and it's cause I, I kind of did, I was able to hear everything, but my, my microphone and my, my sound wasn't really coming through on the recording, but you know, nobody's ever written to us, Sarah, and asked for more Kyle, um, on any episode. <laughs> so I think it's probably okay. <laughs> we'll see what happens after this episode. Yeah. Uh, but just, but just know that, you know, I'm, I'm, I wasn't sort of being uh, disinterested in talking with Sean. I just, I <laughs> physically couldn't actually physically talk to him. So, uh, let's do this thing. All right. Let's hit it. I'm sorry, I don't use Skype a lot, so I kind of I forget every time how to do this. <laughs> it's tough. I forget every time I do it, and I do it at least once a week. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it should be a smarter thing than it than it is. Yeah, well, you know, the same could be said about me. But anyway, <laughs> come on. So, Vishant, have you ever met Kyle Wagonshoots? No, I think we, you know, um, Kyle was coming in as we were, I mean, he was leaving as we were, he was leaving, going out of town as we were coming into town, but I've heard awesome things and you've made my neighborhood really much greater. So Awesome. Where where are you at in Memphis? Uh, we're, we live in Overton Park. Okay, cool. Uh, Vashant, I heard that your son is attending Midtown Montessori School. Yeah, he is. Uh, so my our our son was also there up until we moved um, last spring. I hope you're I hope you're enjoying it. Yeah, really. The the main. I mean, I think it's a good school. Um, I mean, I can show you reams of data about schools and things. We can argue about that, but yeah. I, the the main reason really is um, it's like three blocks uh, yep. from our house and. Um, both in our family, walking to school or biking to school was just something that was normal. And, you know, this morning he and I, I walked and he rode his bike. He's ridden his bike every day. Now, well, yeah, probably most days. He's probably in 90 to 95%. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, it's a good school, but really it's that that idea that, you know, it's just in the neighborhood. So, 
Yeah. When we moved to Boulder, um, our son started kindergarten here. And he actually was accepted into, like, there's, there's a public Montessori school here. He was accepted into it, uh, but we actually elected not to send him there because it was, like, four miles away. And the school that he's going to is less than a quarter mile away. So we get to ride our bike, you know, along a trail next to a creek every single day versus either, you know, hopping on the bus or trying to drive him, you know, all the way across town on a daily basis. It's really, it's really important in terms of, you know, your life. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, those minutes add up mid day by day, uh, and add a little bit of extra free time, uh, to your day, as well as just providing you a great opportunity to sort of hang out with your kids and, you know, watch them, uh, develop as they ride to and from school each day. He has these amazing interactions with the built environment and the natural environment. There's been this frog skeleton that has been on his route. Um, (laughs) We've been having some storms recently and this frog skeleton, and he still talks about that. (laughs) And we've kind of forgotten about that. But on his ride, he's looking for the skeleton. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my son Ethan, my my son Ethan has a snake carcass. Like a, we found like a snake that had been hit by a car and like squished and then dried in the summer sun, and it's in like a Ziploc bag. And we, you know, we can't throw it away. It's the most sacred object he's ever owned, uh, and it's been to show and tell like three times, you know, already this year. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's awesome. just it's just this dried dead snake that we keep at our house. But he found it because you know we were outside uh, on the way to school one morning. Yeah, he. Um, this is my last comment on, on him, uh, but I'm allowed because I'm a trophy dad. Yeah. I was a trophy yeah. dad, but um, you know, Midtown has a lot of trees. We have a, a really nice tree canopy, and you know, he's a boy and he's of a certain age, so he's really into sticks. Um, and you know, so he's hollowed out the ends of his handlebars, and he is always sticking. A tree branch, um, usually much larger than he should, and so he shows up at the Montessori, and he's got like this, you know, antler, some kind of, you know, antler in the form, the deer, you know, some kind of branch in the form of a deer antler <laughs> hanging off the end of his <laughs> handlebar on his little balance bike, and um, I've never seen anything like that. But you know, I think every all families actually, you know, have to make decisions, but this is really great. I mean, he just, it's, it's great how he interacts with it and great. He's able to ride. And then he's got these handlebars that no one else has. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, Sean, to kind of kick us off, will you talk about your work at Little Bird Innovation and also what Little Bird Innovation does? Sure. Little Bird is a uh, um, design thinking consulting firm. So that means that we use a human uh, centered approach uh, to the problems that we work with clients and others on. Um, and we've been around for a couple years now. This is our second year. Our founders um, came from the Innovation Center at um, FedEx. And um, I've been here for uh, about six months. And um, yeah, I just I lead teams uh that are multidisciplinary and uh, work on a variety of issues. Uh, my background is in uh, public-private partner 
partnerships. And um, so this is a little different, um, but it's cool. Uh, right now I'm working on a project, an economic development uh, project focusing on makers um, and creative entrepreneurs and artisans and micro manufacturers um, helping make Memphis a better place um, for them. So, um, yeah, it's um, a lot of work, but um, but it's very interesting. Um, and ultimately, I think it'll make Memphis an even better place. And wasn't Memphis just recently awarded like a Maker's Award from Etsy? Yeah, we had a, a team of um, makers and retailers here um, that were selected to go to Brooklyn. And Etsy held a summit uh, in May. And um, there were about 13 cities around North America that attended. And, and now, six months later, the cities are making progress. And the, pro the program's really focused on working with local governments uh, to make um, the, their their cities uh, even even better for um, these small businesses, these entrepreneurs who sell on the the Etsy global platform. So, so yeah, last night we had um, Alyssa Meyer from um, Etsy. Uh, she presented um, the award, uh, making Memphis an Etsy Makers City. Uh, that's the fourth city um, in the country, and so we're number four. Yay! And um, um, and so Joanne Massey um, of the city city uh, and others um took the award or received the award and it's good you know it's um it's a good recognition um that it's another recognition that the city is doing good things to support small businesses etsy and made by the project that i work on um you know a lot of those businesses are women-owned um so we talk about the economy and growing in small businesses um these kinds of designations um, are important because they add up and they support um, these business people. That's really cool. That's very exciting. Can you also talk more about, I'm always interested to hear all of like little birds perspective on like, what does human centered approach like actually mean? How would you like describe that to like a lay person? Yeah. I am probably the worst person to answer that question at the <laughs> company, but, um, you know, like with the economic development plan, when you do that traditionally and when you go to economic development school and you're that kind of plan or whatever, um, it, it tends to be a, a top-down approach. Like um, you, a, a city or somebody decides they want to get into a certain sector or it's pretty much a very macro approach. That's my opinion. And, um, you know, the made by is, a, is an example of the human center design, um, in the sense that we're, that's all being flipped. So in this case, it's actually spending time with over 30 makers and entrepreneurs and, you know, looking at results surveys from over 300, makers and survey, you know, um, art artisans in the, in the county, um, and, and building it from the ground up that way. Um, so I think that, um, to me at least, um, the human centered approach is, is working with, uh, it's all about the people that matter. Um, and that does the techniques that we use, um, there, there are many, um, I'm sure you, you, we don't want to go the whole podcast, but but basically, empathy um, is one important 
piece of that um, and really listening to people and respecting where they come from. Um, and not to say the other approaches are bad, but just this is a different way of doing it. And we think it provides longer term um, results. So, but if, you know, we talk in a year from now, I may have something completely different to say about human centered <laughs> design. So. so how does kind of, from your perspective, how do you kind of have the knowledge to kind of like be empathetic towards kind of your, your clients or your groups because you're coming from, you're not necessarily a maker or a woman owned business kind of, are there exercises that y'all use to get a grasp on who you're working with and, and really how do you truly like come from, from their perspective? That's an interesting question. We certainly aren't, you know, the team doesn't have those direct experiences. Um, but we have really intense discussions and arguments. That's terrific. Our, um, we are connected to some of these businesses and artisans in very, very um, intimate ways. And so I think that experience uh, helps. I think, um, you know, just we, we recognize we don't have the knowledge. Um, the makers and the entrepreneurs are the experts. Uh, so when you have that recognition on any project, you know, whatever you're working on in the city, um, that makes a huge difference um, that you're there to use a set of tools to work with um, these folks and help, you know, solve the problems or get a little bit closer to it. Um, and I think, you know, just not, like I said before, not, you know, recognize what we don't know or what we don't know, we don't know. Um, but um, talking to as many people as possible. For me, um, it's a little different because, uh, like I said, these teams are multidisciplinary. And, um, they, we have designers and topologists and economists. And um, I'm more of a kind of more of a, a data or analytical, kind, a different kind of, so we complement. So empathy is important in what we do. Um, but I'm more looking at, you know, data and databases and macro things and strategy. And so I think the empathy is, is crucial on an individual level. Um, when you're looking at logic models and data and stuff like that, it's a little different. But that's what makes, I think, Little Bird interesting is that we're trying to use both approaches. Um, and that's it's within this world of design thinking that's a real trend right now in Chicago and New York and other places that um, to combine those, both of those approaches. And so were you using design thinking in your previous work um, before you moved to Memphis? Nope. I not really aware of it before <laughs> we moved here. Yeah, I was not aware of it either. I feel fortunate to have like connected with Little Bird a few years ago to kind of look at kind of research and solving problems in that way. So it's been, I have truly enjoyed Little Bird. I bet it's a fantastic place to, to work and learn. And then so also you, you human design. How would you, how would you describe the approach? Does that resonate with you or is it something else for you? No, I think that empathy is not necessarily a word that I would have like attached to it, but I do think it articulates 
kind of my experiences with, with Little Bird. Um, so for people who are listening, um, Explore Bike Share hired Little Bird um, to do a bunch of community engagement. And it was really great to have these community public meetings with this really thoughtfulness attached to kind of listening exercises that have greatly in, influenced our work. Um, and so I think empathy is like a really great word to use to, to attach to it. I approve of your definition. <laughs> All right, good. So can you, what, what were you doing before you moved to Memphis? Well, we lived in Indianapolis. Um, we follow my wife's career, and uh, she's a research scientist. And uh, I was I was a stay at home dad uh, for eighteen months. And um, before that, uh, I worked. I've worked in a variety. You know, public. I worked in the federal government. I worked in private sector, and in between. Um, and yeah, so we've been here for. Um, yeah, I guess two years, and it's been been very interesting. And while you were in Indianapolis, you were part of that um, a fork in the road project. Is that correct? Um, <laughs> On some uh, level. Yeah, when I had when I was at um, when I was working, you know, as a trophy dad, I um, got involved at kind of a neighborhood level and. It really started out um, the uh, I'm trying to think fork in the road. Now that was that public art. Is that was that that what that was? I think fork in the road was following the Hella lamppost idea, taking it a little further. Oh yeah, lamppost for sure. Yeah, um, yeah, lamppost. It's great. So all of those projects were kind of part of um, getting involved in in this part of Indianapolis that I call it the Rodney Dangerfield side. The east side just doesn't get as much respect as the other parts of the city do. And um, there are a lot of artists that live there um, because it's more affordable. And um, most people there didn't know that um, they're just that all the people that live there, you know, who, who are the artists and how to really pre appreciate the work. So Fork on the Road was part of um, a series of different public art projects that I was a part of. And I am not an artist and I am not, I am not many things, but I just wanted to get this organized and get it going. And so some of them didn't work um, and some of them, you know, got going or, and are still there, which is really cool. And the others have taken it on. Um, and um, yeah, Fork on the Road was just trying to see if we could um, do some storytelling uh, using the geography um, of, of the city um, and working with some uh, uh, developers in London um, who had done some similar projects using kind of activating the infrastructure uh, and having um, like lampposts and fire hydrants talk to them on their phones using text messaging. The cool thing uh, about the when we were testing it in Indianapolis was that um, people were kind of thinking about this in terms of um, what the, this would be like a really different way of having a date. So walking through downtown and being told the story on your phone and interacting with the, the, the built environment. Um, and some of the information was accurate and true. Um, 
and some of it wasn't, uh, and and you wouldn't really quite know which was which. Was the cultural trail in Indianapolis included in this project? Yeah, we did. There's a big gamer convention where we tested it, um, the prototype, and um, and part of the where the um, the con- uh, it's called Gen Con. Um, that's uh, one type of gaming. Uh, it's a very big convention. And so this story was a, con- a Civil War uh, story. And um, so it took people, um, it was a choose-your-own-adventure format. So you could, um, you may end up on the cultural trail. <laughs> you could end up in, I mean, we played the games. We tested it a bunch of different times. And each time, based on the decisions that you, you made, you know, I ended up in a different place than my partner did every time. So. You know, Vashon, I have spent some time in Indianapolis, and uh, I have some really we have some really good friends there. One of our guests on the podcast in the recent past was Indy's uh, bicycle and pedestrian coordinator, Jameson Hutchins. I'm I'm just curious, you know, from your perspective, having recently moved from one to the other, I I find that there's a lot of similarities in terms of. Uh, how Memphis and Indianapolis are sort of developing and going through a renaissance in terms of creative innovations and addressing, you know, things like transportation and bicycling. Um, but that Indianapolis might be a couple of years ahead. Do you, do you have any kind of sense of that thus far being not being in Memphis for, for very long? Yeah, I think, aren't they, I mean, they're both uh, people for bike cities, correct? Yeah, Memphis. Uh, Memphis was actually one first. Let's just we want to specify who who came before the other. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Memphis. Memphis was a part of the Green Lane project uh, for the first two years, and when that program ended, uh, Indianapolis became a part of the second cohort of Green Lane project cities. Okay. Yeah, and I think. It, I mean, I'm not. Um, you know, I'm very, very. I have very superficial knowledge of, of this world. You guys are obviously experts, but I think even like on some of the trips over to um, Europe, you know, I think some of the city like Memphis and Indianapolis folks may have even been on trips or overlapped or something like that. Um, I, I think, you know, one of the differences um, is the size and, you know, a couple million people here or there actually makes a real difference um, or 500, 750,000 um, so, so that's interesting. Um, it's flatter downtown or in a good chunk of uh, Memphis on the planning, the designer, the urban landscape design is a little different. Um, and, um, the innovation, like you said, yeah, I think it is a few years ahead. Um, you know, Indianapolis doesn't have the poverty, uh, so that makes a difference. Now, having said a bunch of that the um you know obviously bike share the cultural trail is a little different um and and the way that the bike share is designed there um sarah can speak to that obviously but um what's something that indy has that i don't know that we have here in memphis um and one of the public art projects that i tried to uh, that i worked on we kind of went a little ways um is it, I, i'm not familiar with the um, the manufacturing history here of the of the bicycling or the cycling, both in the present and in the past, mm-hmm. 
So, um, and, and you guys can correct me, but, um, you know, SRAM bought um, Zip. And yep. when, when, when that happened, people were freaking out. And I think they were. And they just thought Zip was, you know, going to get gutted. And it sounds like that SRAM has, you know, added other operations to Indianapolis because of their experience so far of that acquisition. Um, yeah, I think I think that's accurate. I mean, I do know that SRAM has a has a large presence there, and you know they have they also, SRAM also has a great cycling foundation that does a lot of advocacy work around the world, um, but has a particular interest in Indianapolis sometimes just because of their proximity to you know their facilities there. I'm curious to know, you know, sort of having <clears throat> moved, how has how has your bicycling experience changed going between the two cities? Uh, I think that I'm in a different, <laughs> in a different place. Um, our son is growing and so our bicycling is different. Um, and, um, our life here is also very different. The built environment, obviously the cities are designed differently, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, our life here really is like, <laughs> I don't know one and a half square miles. It's, I mean, it's just, it's really, we really don't go out. We're in a little perimeter. And in Indy, we, it wasn't like that. Um, and we had, we, we were more spread out. Our lives were more spread out. I don't know why, but yeah, our life is just, um, you know, much more compressed here. What I was starting to say also about the cycling paths in mm-hmm. Indy, um, there's just so many, because of automotive, uh, the history of automotive, um, so many and cycling being the precursor to that so many little places that were things were being made in the heyday of bike history and the clubs all the cycling clubs i don't again i don't have that history here but my neighborhood had um you know a cycling club that was very famous uh, and 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 had an incredible racing record and these are just normal guys these were guys that worked in the factories and they rode at night and they rode on the weekends, and we were working on uh, putting together a mural uh, um, on the roadway um, where they used to ride, uh, celebrating um, that history. Um, so, th- you know, these are people that are in manufacturing, but lots of bicycle manufacturing is being also done And back in the day. Um, that's, I think, just an incredible part of um, Indiana or Indianapolis um, biking. Since you moved here have you noticed a change in memphis's bike culture as 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 you've gotten to know the city more oh yeah you know um kyle's green lanes and uh the obviously the the infrastructure there i think there are more people biking every day i think that when we compare like we've been comparing the two, two cities you know, the automotive, the, the cars are not really prepared um, or know how to deal with bikers. And I think, you know, groups like, it's interesting, you know, revolutions, um, they they have some great equipment and um, workshop and so forth. But like in Indy, the advocacy groups are really strong um, and you don't really have to be a cycling geek to get it and to be plugged into that 
I think that's changing here. And I think that's really cool that, um, you know, some of the rides that are happening, um, what are they called, Sarah? The snail rides or the... Uh, freewheel. But I really appreciate the fact that you call them the snail rides because the snail is the mascot of the freewheel. Right, the yeah. <laughs> and it's like so, one know, of my I... favorite things that's happened this year is the snail. <laughs> yeah, more of those district rides. I think, um, I mean, the bridge is phenomenal. I think that part. So, you know, bit by bit, Things here, it's like we're we're behind, but the cur the, the the slope of the curve is just straight up, um, and, and things are really taking off here. Are makers having issues with with transportation? Is that like a pain point for the makers in Memphis? Yeah, I think that if it takes you twice as long to pick up your materials and your supplies or to deliver uh, your products to your customers. Um, for any business, that's a problem. And for makers, that's even more of a problem. And um, I think that, you know, this is the, the partner, the implementation partner for Made By is Epicenter. And um, this project really fits into what they're trying to do. Uh, in terms of economic development projects in the city because it's part of their uh, community and neighborhood strategy. So you're really trying to build businesses and entrepreneurs in neighborhoods. Um, and then it makes that makes the mobility issue and the transportation issue um, kind of softens that a little bit. And you're creating jobs where people already are. I think um, other people like Carolyn Hardy are also talking about creating businesses and entrepreneurs in neighborhoods where people already are. Um, so, um, yeah, transportation is a problem. And maybe if we, we have more businesses and hire more people <laughs> um, where we can make transportation more of a neutral, neutral issue, um, that might be a good idea. So where have you, part of your survey was talking about kind of like the transformation you've seen through traveling to kind of Asia in the last 40 years where there was this huge kind of bike culture. And as Asia's middle class grows, there are more kind of passenger car passenger cars um, on the road. Um, where was the last time that you kind of like traveled and saw that kind of new development? So I have, I have family overseas um, in India and um you know, before having a, a car was a really fancy big deal, you usually had a driver, uh, and these are middle-class people. Um, these aren't wealthy, wealthy people. Now, lots of people have cars. Part of that is because um, before it was just state brands or, you know, partnerships uh, with the government and some foreign car company. Now they're, you know, the market a lot more choices and then the prices you know you can get low end you can get medium price cars and things like that obviously that means that the car you know the the roads are not really really meant for that um and so there's just tremendous traffic um there have always been other things like you know mopeds and tuk-tuks and all that but I, I yeah what i was saying was that um you know it's really you would go to a train station and and it would just be a sea of bikes 
and you go to the college campuses in China or India and just be a sea of bikes. I remember a long time ago riding uh, during, you know, <laughs> uh, like the um, five o'clock rush hour on a bike in China and just thought I was going to, we were going to get mauled. I mean, it was just crazy, crazy traffic. That's not, you know, it's cars now. It's not, it's not bikes. Um, and, and we were in China a couple of years ago. Um, and it was really interesting to see how people were um, charging um, their electric bikes. Um, there are a variety of ways. So the way electric bikes are being introduced in Europe and in England and the way they may or may not be introduced here and what that market looks like and how people are using, you know, lead acid batteries and other things. You go to the equivalent of essentially a 7-Eleven or a corner grocery store in, you know, Suzhou or a medium-sized, you know, quote-unquote medium-sized city in China, and you pay somebody, you know, for five minutes of charging so you can get your bike, you can ride your bike home. That's a very different um, thing than, than what we see here, I think. That's really interesting. It reminds me kind of, of like the kind of like how cell phones and payment for cell phones is different in Asia and Africa would be included as well. Where like you're buying maybe just like five minutes at the corner store that you load onto your phone. And it's interesting that that translates to an e-bike battery as well. It's like pay as you go for your bike. <laughs> yeah. And it's not pretty, it's not well designed. Like what you'd see on the cultural trail or what you'll see here in Memphis is the lead acid batteries are right there. You hook up your bike and it's right out there. <laughs> at the store you know it's really kind of funny so that's super well thanks to sean for joining us on the bike nerds podcast we really appreciate it and i know i learned a lot and i hope you enjoy your friday friday afternoon yeah. podcasting yeah thanks bye you guys thanks for having me the bike nerds podcast is a joint production of the bike nerds sarah and kyle and the oam network based in memphis tennessee for more information visit the oamnetwork.com slash the bike nerds want to nerd out more find us on the web at the bike nerds podcast.com on twitter at the bike nerds and on facebook the bike nerds podcast drop us a note or recommend another bike nerd to have on the show by sending us an email at the bike nerds podcast at gmail.com